This is Christian Kroll, and you're listening to the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. A race can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. My name is Christian Kroll, and I'm an EDICU pharmacist at the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinics, and I have a special guest with me today, Dr. Megan Klatt. Megan, how about you introduce yourself to the pod? Hi, Christian. Uh, yes, my name is Megan Klatt. I'm an antimicrobial stewardship and infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Kansas Health System in Kansas City, Kansas. Thanks, Megan. Now a word from our episode sponsor. Hey guys, I know you've been wondering, how did Jimmy get these new sponsorships for the Farm So Hard podcast? And I want to go ahead and put you guys in the loop. I've started using a platform called Podcorn. And what Podcorn is, is a platform that connects podcasters to other amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. The cool thing I like about Podcorn is that there's no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set your own rates, and collaborate with the brands directly without any exclusivities. The other cool part is they're not asking for any rights to the podcast. They really just make it to where you can get compensated for your work. The Marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when they monetize. So guys, go ahead and check out the link in my show notes, sign up for Podcorn, and see all the different sponsorships, opportunities they have for you today. So today I brought Megan onto the pod to help us quickly walk through some oral and facial infections that we commonly see in the emergency department. Megan, do you want to start us off with reviewing some preceptal and orbital cellulitis? Yes, sounds great. First things first, let's differentiate the two. Preceptal is sometimes called periorbital cellulitis and is defined by infection of the soft tissue layers anterior to the eyelid and does not involve the orbit or other ocular structures. Orbital cellulitis, as implied, affects the orbit. As you can imagine, periorbital cellulitis is more common and less serious, although if not treated properly, it can be. And both are more commonly seen in our kiddos versus our adults. How do you diagnose one versus the other? First things first, let's differentiate the two. Preceptal is sometimes called periorbital cellulitis and is defined by infection of the soft tissue layers anterior to the portion of the eyelid. It does not involve the orbit or other ocular structures. Orbital cellulitis, as implied, affects the orbit. As you can imagine, periorbital cellulitis is more common and less serious, although if not treated properly, it definitely can be serious. And both infections are more commonly seen in our kiddos versus our adult patient populations. So then how do you diagnose one versus the other? Great question. Like most things, a combination of clinical signs and symptoms, as well as imaging, if possible. Preceptal cellulitis inherently should present more like a localized infection with swelling erythema of the eyelid, but really no other systemic signs of infection. Orbital cellulitis typically presents with swelling, erythema, but also fever, malaise, eye pain, and more importantly, issues or problems with vision. In certain cases, CT of the sinuses and orbits may be necessary to rule out orbital involvement. You mentioned sinuses. Is that relevant in terms of pathophysiology? Yes. 
and what we want to cover with our antibiotics as well. For both, infection typically occurs either via direct inoculation or trauma to the eyelid or spread from contiguous structures, mainly the paranasal sinuses. In cases of infection by direct inoculation, we should think about antibiotics to cover our skin flora, so group A streptococcus and staphylococcus species. However, if we're thinking of this as being more of a spread from the sinuses, then we would want to cover more of our bacteria implicated in bacterial sinusitis. So that being streptococcus pneumoniae, Haemophilus influenzae, although this is less common with our pediatric vaccinations, um, Staphylococcus aureus, and potentially some of our oral anaerobes as well. Viruses and fungi are less commonly implicated, but should be considered in immunocompromised patients. How do we treat? For preceptal cellulitis, you should direct inoculation. Oral cephalexin should be perfectly okay for mild infections. Cefazolin should be used if we need intravenous therapy and that is indicated. If we want to cover for possible sinus flora, amoxicillin clavulanate should be our go-to for oral therapy or ampicillin sulbactam if we need intravenous antibiotics. Orbital cellulitis is typically treated with intravenous ampicillin sulbactam with the addition of MRSA coverage in certain clinical scenarios. And if you're able to obtain good cultures, we should always narrow to the most appropriate therapy. Perfect. Could you expand on the role of MRSA coverage and when that is needed? Of course. For preceptal cellulitis, there have been reports of increasing prevalence of methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus or MRSA implicated in these types of infections. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone should be treated or covered for MRSA. There's no exact science, but if your patient doesn't have risk factors for MRSA infection or colonization, for example, they have no recent infection or colonization, we say within the past 90 days, um, no associated abscess, and haven't been recently hospitalized and required IV antibiotics during that hospitalization, or they don't live in an area that has a high prevalence of MRSA in the community, then it's likely safe to exclude coverage of MRSA in these patients. Perfect. And then how long do you want to treat for? Most cases of preceptal cellulitis can be treated with five to seven days of antibiotics. And for orbital cellulitis, the duration may vary based on severity, but typically we treat for a total of 14 to 21 days. Perfect. Thank you, Megan. Another infection that I'd like to discuss actually is not an infection of the oral area, but instead is the consequence of an impact to the mouth. I'm talking about human bite injuries, specifically human fight bites, as they're commonly called. When the contact of the fist reaches the oral cavity, there can be minimal scratches to those metacarpals all the way up to pieces of the tooth that can be lodged into those metacarpals because of that punch. Because these injuries can appear minor in nature sometimes, there's a decent amount of undertreatment for these injuries that can definitely cause severe infections. Now, Megan, what organisms do we have to consider in these type of injuries? Great question. When looking at the bacteria that is associated with these injuries, we have to consider the polymicrobial nature of organisms from the human mouth, as well as some of our common skin and soft tissue infection pathogens. These pathogens can include both viridins and peptostreptococcus, staphylococcus, and specifically with these human bites, we really need to be concerned about Echinella. Now, it's estimated that these bites result in infection about 10 to 20% of the time, 
In a randomized study found that in patients who presented 24 hours after injury and were without signs and symptoms of infection, about 50% still became infected. With the injury around or in some of the joint capsules, these infections can get severe rather quickly. Now, depending on the extent of the injury, there might be additional therapies that can be offered for some patients. Patients can be managed with antibiotics only, with bedside irrigation and debridement, and some will need to go to the OR for definitive management. Thanks, Megan. Now, appropriate antibiotics for these patients include ones that can adequately cover Iconella. Now, our empiric treatment is similar to that of many other types of bites. For our first-line treatment for these fight bites, we should be either on unison or augmentin, depending on our severity and if this patient is coming into the hospital. Now, if your patient is appropriate for home, based on the potential severity that these injuries can bring, I have a little hesitation to increase from the standard dose of augmentin of 875 milligrams twice a day to the augmentin extended release, two grams twice daily. I personally think this is warranted with decent joint capsule involvement and or severe injury, but these patients are okay for home, maybe after some uh, debridement bedside. Now, Iconella is resistant to many cephalosporins and clindamycin. So if you can't give a penicillin, Iconella is typically susceptible to ceftriaxone, Bactrim, and foraquinolones, which can be used in combination with other medications like clindamycin to cover the full spectrum of pathogens that can be involved. Again, these are human mouths that we're talking about. Now, for the length of treatment, I typically think about seven days or so for these fight bites. But again, depending on the severity and such, I have less hesitation to really increase my duration to that 10 to 14 day window if needed. Next, moving on to a very common complaint within the emergency department, peritonsillar abscesses. Megan, what is a peritonsillar abscess and how do these patients present? A peritonsillar abscess is the formation of an abscess in the area between the palatine tonsil and the tonsillar capsule. Most peritonsillar abscesses resolve with relatively simple measures, such as surgical and medical management. However, if left untreated, these abscesses can result in extension of the infection into the deep neck tissues, airway obstruction, or sepsis, to name a few. A major initial consideration with peritonsillar abscess is that is if there is any airway compromise or obstruction. Any signs of airway compromise definitely relate to a higher severity of disease or illness where ENT can be needed for urgent evaluation and management. Thankfully, many of our patients do not present with airway compromise, but instead present with somewhere around three to five days of progressive sore throat, malaise, pain with swallowing, ear pain, fever, or trismus. What patient characteristics are associated with this disease and what organisms should we be covering? Many times our patients with peritonsillar abscesses are within the 19 to 50 year old range of patients and risk factors are not well characterized for this particular disease state. When thinking of the organisms that cause peritonsillar abscesses, around 40% of culture findings are negative. Of those cultures that do have positive findings, the most common culprit is group A streptococcus. In addition to group A streptococcus, other streptococcus and staphylococcus species may also be found. Moreover, anaerobes can also be found in about 10% of cultures. Common anaerobic organisms include peptostreptococcus, Prevotella, and Fusobacterium. Thanks, Megan, for reviewing that information. Now, when thinking of antibiotic therapy, 
Our initial selection of antibiotics will be determined by patient factors, such as if the patient can swallow or how critically ill the patient is. If our patient is destined for admission or can't swallow, our usual treatment of choice is usually, again, unison or ampicillin and selbactam, normally dosed at that three grams every six hours for many of our patients. Additional options for patients include combining a cephalosporin like ANCEF with flagell if the patient can't do penicillins due to minor reactions. Now, if you have a severe penicillin allergy or cephalosporin allergies, a common recommendation is clindamycin, commonly dosed around 300 to 450 milligrams every six hours. Now, it's important to consider that there is increasing resistance of organisms like the strep species that are commonly found in these infections to clindamycin. If your facility has a high resistant rate to these organisms, one can consider using a fluoroquinolone plus metronidazole in patients with severe allergies in the setting of that uh, institutional resistance. When considering duration of treatment, there's a fairly wide spectrum between institutional protocols. I personally think your duration of treatment depends on if the source, if source control is achieved. If the provider believes that source control is complete, one should consider maybe around a five-day course or so. But if source control is not achieved, one should consider at least a seven-day course of treatment, but that could range all the way up to 14 days, depending on how sick this patient is. In my practice, providers opt to usually treat for that seven to 10-day course based on complete in an IND, but unsure if complete source control was obtained. In addition, there's been increasing use of steroids in these patients acutely to help with inflammation based on those absences abscesses, as well as pain. There has been a few recent meta-analyses that have reviewed steroid use in these patients and have found a potential benefit of symptom resolution, such as being able to open your mouth wider and with clinical benefits, such as potentially a sooner discharge. However, these meta-analyses involve very few studies, so exploring these results might not be possible without more data. If one is planning on using steroids in these patients, I recommend just a one-time dose in the ED of either methylprednisolone at maybe a dose of like 125 milligrams or most commonly seen dexamethasone 10 milligram dose. And I would definitely favor the latter of the dexamethasone 10 milligram dose based on that extended action of dexamethasone compared to methylprednisolone. Now transitioning into a patient population that can be extremely sick when they come through our ED doors, those with Ludwig's angina. Yes, but first, a few facts. As you can imagine, Ludwig's angina is named after the physician Wilhelm Frederick von Ludwig, the first to describe the condition in great detail back in 1836. Additionally, angina is derived from the Latin word angier, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but oh well, which translates into English as to strangle or to throttle, which is pretty appropriate given, if unmanaged, Ludwig's angina can result in airway obstruction. Oofda. Thanks for describing that, Megan. I thought we might be talking cardiology here for a second when you mentioned angina. What do we see in patients that present with Ludwig's? Thanks, Christian, for always interjecting some good Midwestern slang there. Uh, Ludwig's is a cellulitis of the submandibular space, so think the floor of the mouth. Ludwig's is a serious infection because it can spread rapidly through the tissue planes, as alluded to, and lead to airway compromise. Most commonly, Ludwig's is associated with poor dentition, usually a dental infection, particularly an infected molar is to blame. In terms of presentations, patients usually present with this fullness of the submental area, which is often referred to as bull's neck or bull neck. 
Other symptoms include fever, dysphagia, and induration of the floor of the mouth. Another important sign is the displacement of the tongue such that it is elevated. And again, this can lead to airway compromise. That sounds scary. What organisms are we concerned about with Ludwig's? Yeah, so in general, Ludwig's is considered to be a polymicrobial infection. Given the location of the infection, again, we typically think about our oral flora. So Staphylococcus species, Streptococcus, and some of our mouth anaerobes. Again, we're thinking Peptostreptococcus, Bacteroides, Prevotella, and Fusobacterium. Now, with these polymicrobial and potentially very sick patients, how should we go about treating these patients in the ED? Yeah, so great question. Um, In case I haven't stressed this enough, this is a very severe infection and has the potential to cause fatal complications. So ENT really should be consulted as soon as possible to evaluate the need for surgical management and potential source control. In the meantime, we should definitely protect the airway and start intravenous antibiotics. I don't think it will surprise anyone that our go-to antibiotics should be here, um, either ampicillin sulbactam or ceftriaxone with metronidazole to cover the aforementioned organisms, again, including our oral anaerobes. MRSA coverage may be reasonable in certain patients, um, but the important point here um, is that most patients do not require our more broad-spectrum antibiotics, such as piperacillin tazobactam or cefepime with metronidazole. Pseudomonas aeruginosa is not typically implicated in these infections. However, you always need to consider risk factors for our specific patients to determine if there are more broad spectrum coverage that is indicated. Awesome. Well, thank you, Megan, so much for taking the time out of your day to go over these with me. I see these commonly in the ED, so it's always kind of good to think about more of what's causing these infections and how do we treat these. Yeah, of course. Always a pleasure. (music) 